This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan and this programme is brought to you by the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. Isn't it great to be back after another lockdown? We hope you all kept safe in your bubbles. As we head, hopefully, back down the levels, it's time to get out and about again and to explore the depth and richness of Dunedin's art scene. In today's show, we're celebrating ceramic art ahead of a special exhibition at the Otago Art Society and the Diamond Jubilee of Ceramics New Zealand. But first, let's hear from Ross Curry about what's new in the Dunedin art world. This is Snapshot. So Ross, I think um, we've got the 60th National Diamond Jubilee Exhibition of the Ceramics Association of New Zealand happening right here in Dunedin during October. That's right, and the reason why is because Dunedin was the place where that held the first studio potters show. And this October is where the major pottery competition is going to be held at the railway station. Fantastic. So there's an exhibition at the railway station opening on the 21st of September. Can you tell us anything about that? It comprises of potters all around the country and everything will be on sale as well. So it's, a, it's, it's going to be a superstore for pottery, basically. Very exciting for everybody who's interested in ceramics. And then I think, too, there is a special event on Saturday the 23rd of October in the form of a ceramic walkabout. Can you tell us what exactly a ceramic walkabout is? A ceramic walkabout is going to visit a number of inner-city galleries that are showing a range of potters. So if you want to join this on the 23rd of October at 9 o'clock, go to the exchange and the guides will be there to meet you. And I think that runs for three hours until midday on the 23rd of October. Now my understanding is that there are five galleries. Ross, can you tell us which galleries they are and to the extent that we know, um, which artists are showing at which galleries? Well, Olga Gallery in Murray Place is exhibiting work from Madeline Child, who's a local potter and a previous winner of the Portage Award. Also, Mark and Paul Rayner, two brothers from Wanganui, are going to be showing their works. At the Brett McDowell Gallery, we've got Elizabeth Tom and Lauren Winston, both Auckland potters. And at the Milford Gallery, We've got Mark Mitchell, who is a previous winner of the Portage Award 2019 also. Gallery De Nova and Van Brandenburg Architecture um, are two other places that are putting on special shows. So this is a really significant event for ceramics in New Zealand and we're incredibly lucky that it's happening in Dunedin. So I'd encourage everybody out there to get in and enjoy, if you're a ceramics fan, some of the events that are happening during the month of October. Now, Ross, I think also there's some exciting stuff happening at the Polytech School of Art during the month. Yes, there are a number of workshops and exhibitions. People like Neil Grant, Bronwyn Mooring and Michael Tannock 
are going to be involved in that. These will be open to the public, but some of them are also workshops, which involves a fee. If you want to know the specific times for, for these, please go to the School of Art website where you can get specific details. Sounds good. Thanks, Ross. And now it's time for Viewpoint, our monthly feature item. Ross will be talking to Moira Elliott, an independent curator and writer specialising in ceramics, a former director of the Fletcher Challenge Ceramics Award and an award-winning ceramic artist herself. Moira, welcome to Sightlines and thank you for joining us today. Um, Soon we're going to be holding the... Uh, Ceramics Association 60th anniversary in Dunedin where the first studio potters exhibited. How did all this start? It started back in the 20s and 30s with people making stuff and it was it was a women's work at that point. Um, so the studio pottery movement as it's been known in New Zealand you know which really took off uh, in the 50s had already been going for 20 or 30 years in, in a small way up until that point. What kind of pottery were they producing, Moira? Well, these women, they were all producing domestic wear for, for various reasons. There are four of them which have come through as names that we instantly recognize today. But uh, previous, but, but there were more women than that. Um, They've come into it through various means. The first one that, that comes to mind is, is Briar Gardner, who was born in 1879. But she came from the Gardner-Clark family, which started off as amalgamated brick and tile and grew into Crown Lynn. And she was an independent, fairly well-off woman who moved into West Auckland, where the play was very good. And she decided she wanted to make pots. Um and she would get up at 4.30 in the morning to take lessons from the industrially trained thrower that they employed there so that he could start his regular work at 6 o'clock in the morning. I mean, she stoked her own coal-fired kiln, which her brothers built for her, and made work until she was 70 when arthritis stopped her from making pots. So she took up as a speech therapist. She was an amazing lady. <laughs> and she did it all with a hat on. Did, they, did these women work together? No, one or two did. Uh, Elizabeth Matheson was another one, a farmer's daughter from Ekatahuna and a Quaker who wanted a more creative life than was been mapped out for her. And she learned to make pots and coal fire at Timata in Hawke's Bay. Now, she joined up with Olive Jones, who'd taken herself off to England to learn at an art school there. Um, and they exhibited in various places together and got a lot of publicity for their work. Now, those two worked together, but the rest knew each other to some point, but not really well. They were independent makers. They all fired with coal. They dug their own clay. They, they worked. They, I mean, it must have been horrendous just working their way through to uh, getting to be production people. And so they were uh, real pioneers, weren't they? they? They were seriously real pioneers who rolled their sleeves up and got stuck in and did it, yes. How did the um, New Zealand pottery movement evolve from from these pioneers? Well, there was interest all the way through. I mean, these weren't the only four, but they had they all took, they all taught classes, and there was interest all the way through. Now, for example, 
Olive Jones would demonstrate at the Auckland's Easter show every year, and people like Pat Perrin and Lynn Castle, as young people and teenagers, would watch her with great fascination. And that interest grew. From, so it grew in ways like that. Um, Elizabeth Lissaman, the other of the four uh, original ones, learned about pottery at school. She was a she was grew up on a farm in remote part of Nelson. Uh, had to take the ferry and go to boarding school in Wellington. And there they were educated young ladies. This was quite a posh boarding school. And she learned about ceramics as part of her art training there. And she recognized that she had seen clay in the cuttings when the horse and dray of her father, which would take her to the ferry, uh, would would drive her down and and the cuttings in the road were bright yellow with, with, with the earthenware. And she knew that there was clay there. And she wanted to stay on the farm. Uh, and so she went from there. The actual studio pottery movement started here to a degree with the publication of Bernard Leach's book in 1940, which was called A Potter's Book. And there was news of it, and the first copy was soon after 1940 arriving, um, and people wanted to get hold of this book. It was There was imported teachers here who went back to England for pottery training, came back so that they could teach pottery in high schools and at university level, well, teaching college, that sort of thing. And Bernard Leach himself um, came to New Zealand, didn't he, at one point? Well, he did in 1963, yes. Uh, but that was once the, the ethos here was well established by the time Bernard Leach came. Yes, there was a film made at that time. Can we move on to the movers and shakers over the over the decades in New Zealand? Who has um, been the boundary breakers in in New Zealand? Well, it depends which era you're talking about, because there've been boundary breakers in every era as we've gone through. Uh, with the Anglo Oriental movement, which was started by the Bernard Leach book, uh, then if the the whole movement became very male at that point. Uh, this teacher who went back to England and returned here and was teaching at night school, Len Castle was a student, Pat Perrin was a student, Peter Stitchbury was a student, and they worked their way through that book. And with this man worked out ways of doing it. And they were boundary breakers at that point because nobody knew anything except what was in Bernard Leach's book, which is not really a... It's a how-to-do-it book, but it's more a philosophical book. So there were those people, they, they were pioneers in their own way. Um, they brought a, for example, Len Castle brought a way of uh, broken bread textures back from an early Japan visit and talked and wrote about it and talked about the influences from the New Zealand landscape and nature in the work. And that became a, a part of the New Zealand ethos of making making things in clay. Um Merrick Smithick, for example, repeated the horizon lines of the Manawatu Hills on the on the rims of his pots. Uh, Peter Stitchbury literally put West Coast sand across his glazes and fired it in the kiln, which gave him a gold streaks across his dark brown place uh, uh, well glazed surfaces. So that that all was enormously influential at that time through the 50s, 60s, and well into the 70s. In the 70s, a younger group were coming through and they were looking less to the leech dominance as to making a more robust style of 
uh, of work, and uh, amongst those were people like Ross Mitalanian, Richard Parker. Um, they were a more insistent way of unfussed, robust work that reflected our beginnings in British countryware, that those small local potteries that turned out multiple works for local consumption, very casual-looking stuff. It was a different way of the very neat finishing that was done by the earlier practitioners. That was the dominant style for a long, long time. And then we ignored, here in New Zealand, we completely ignored what was happening overseas at that time. In the late 50s, uh, in Japan and the USA's West Coast, things were being completely overturned from the Anglo-Oriental. Um, in what this, way? In what said, way? This, is, this was ignored here. Well, people were making work which was nothing about the Anglo-Oriental and the vessel-making tradition on the wheel. People were hand-building and making work which was much more personally expressive. Dennis O'Connor was uh, one who was aware of this. He would go to the local um, uh, consulate here in Auckland and find these ceramic magazines and books, and he was looking it up, whereas most people here were ignoring it completely. Eventually, he and Peter Hawksby went to California and spent three months traveling around and seeing as much as they could. And O'Connor then brought back a, a, a change in style, which was looser, more casual, more decorative, and the influence of the kiln was much more apparent all over the surface of the work. Um, then there was an extraordinarily important exhibition called the 5 by 5 done in a conventional art gallery here, private art gallery here in Auckland. It was Dennis O'Connor and Peter Hawksby and John Parker, who brought a completely different thing with him from Royal College in London. He... His style has changed very little since his return from London. And what he uses is a very disciplined way of working with strictly limited forms, vessel forms, and strictly limited color, uh, and staying with the wheel thrown vessel. And then there was Bronwyn Cornish, who was already treading her own path, making figuratively in a very loose, unfussed way. And she is about the only person who was making work figuratively based there here in New Zealand. And the third one was Warren Tippett. Sorry, the fifth one was Warren Tippett, um, who was who started off as an Anglo-Oriental man who initially made high-fired wares, and then he decided that he would make it far more decorative. There were lots of changes in his life. His whole lifestyle changed. He added enamels and colors and various other effects to the Anglo-Oriental made this glorious work and then changed again very quickly. He came out as a gay man, dropped his temperatures and used an electric kiln for the rest of his days and allowed himself to become a decorator of surface on well-thrown domestic pots. And he has been a huge influence as well. He started off in the Tower in, in the bottom of the South Island and gradually worked his way up through the country um, with various kilns and potteries and finally went to Sydney and he was based there when he died. How receptive has the New Zealand public been to the various changes? Uh, the public's... Right, that's an interesting one. The public understands 
pots, handmade pots. This has always been a big public for pottery here in New Zealand. They understand it, they respect it, they know the work that goes into it. They, they were brought up on things like Barry Brickle throwing on TV and intervals between programs, you know, back in the 60s and, and into the 70s. Um, they enjoy that work and they're still, well, and they still will buy it, but it's mainly an older generation, but perhaps not. Uh, but the public has stayed with the domestic ware. The more adventurous, um, expressive wear that's coming through now, then there's a younger public for that which is very interested. The art galleries are very interested in that. A lot of the private galleries are looking for people who work in that way now uh, to exhibit them and see what happens and see if there's a, an interested, a public interested enough to buy the work because this is Art gallery prices, rather than the domestic wear prices that we've been used to. You see, the New Zealand public has been trained into thinking that studio pottery is about the same price as pots you can buy in Kmart or something like that. But that's not the case with with well, with the handmade work anymore, and it's certainly not the case with, with the work which is um, an expression of someone's art. Interesting. You were um, director of the Fletcher Challenge Ceramics Awards for six years. What impact did this have on the pottery scene in New Zealand? Well, the Fletcher was really an enormous one. I mean, I did it for, for seven years. Um, it had been largely New Zealand and a few Australian entries all that time. But when me and, and when I and my team took over, we wanted to, Fletcher's wanted it to be more international and we wanted to see those pots that we were looking at in journals and magazines offshore here because those pot in exhibitions don't come this far. You know, we're the last stop before Antarctica. So we wanted to get those pots here for the, for the Fletcher. Uh, we did it by a, a group of means, but, uh, we weren't the first international competition on the field. There was Italy and Japan were ahead of us. Uh, but what we did here in New Zealand was we managed the publicity better than either Japan or Italy. I think there's, because most ceramic magazines were in English, uh, that was an advantage for us. But we sent every magazine in the world, of which at that time, when we finally worked out how many there were, there were 27 and every one of those magazines would cover the Fletcher Show every year. So that artists everywhere knew that if they won an award in the Fletcher in New Zealand, even though they had to send their work all this way, they were, their work would be in every magazine in the world. And that was a career breaker for many people. But then when the <clears> arrival, well, when the works, but the other effect that it had was the arrival of the works coming from around the world. I mean, we had entries from Russia. We had entries from Iceland. We had entries from places we'd barely ever heard of. <laughs> um, and they'd come in and... New Zealand potters could look at a range of work that was unthinkable here. Um, and so people would come from all over the country every year up for the Fletcher, and it was a huge influence right through the 90s for, 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 that, for those reasons. And many of those pieces now are in public art collections, is that right? 
Well, yes, they are. All the winners are in the, still in the Fletcher collection. They're in the Fletcher art collection, each and every winner, except for one where there were two winners one year and Auckland Museum bought one and Fletcher's bought the other one. These were both Japanese works. Um, but, but yes, uh, there are collections all around the country with those international works. I mean, I have three myself, which I bought over the period of the 90s uh, to... Uh, well, just because I didn't want them to leave the country again. So you, you've alluded to this in, in, uh, a little bit, but what about the future? Let's do a bit of um, future uh, gazing here. What about directions for New Zealand pottery in the future? Where do you see it going? Well, you know, the internet came in uh, around the turn of the century with a vengeance. The Fletchers was done without the internet. We, we, we made entry by email of entry in the last couple of years, but uh, the internet now is a huge force for everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's massive. Um, so people look to the internet for their ideas now, and, they, and some people here know very well what's happening all around the world. The emphasis now elsewhere more so than in New Zealand, is on scale. Work is very odd, particularly in the States, but in Europe as well uh, and Asia. Work goes is up in scale to an, um, quite often remarkable degree. We simply don't have the tools or the experience here for work on those sort of scales. But mainly it's surface work. It's drips and blobs and thick runs and muddled colours on architectural or loosely vessel, unfunctional vessel forms. Um, and they're often made by artists who were originally trained in other media uh, at an art school. So they're bringing a different sensibility to working with clay. Um, and it's an interesting sensibility because it largely ignores ceramic history, which has always been a huge influence on makers in clay, whether it's domestic ware or whether it's uh, uh, sculpture, because those two things have been being made for you know, an enormously long time. But those historical things are largely ignored by many of the artists now, and they just simply make, and they build structures, and they put so much surface embellishment on it that it's amazing. It's a trend. Whether we will uh, continue along that way, where, you see, so much art these days is uh, multimedia. People use a multi multiplicity of media. And often it's not just clay, but it's clay and other things mixed in to make a work of art. This is happening to a lesser extent here. It is happening. Thank you. We, we, um, I was going to say, Moira, we're, we're really looking forward to seeing some of those developments in the pieces on show here. Thank you very much for joining Sightlines today. Thanks, Ross. And thank you for joining us for this edition of Sightlines, which is also available on podcast from the Otago Access Radio website. That's oar.org.nz. Next time, we'll be talking with recent graduates of the Otago Polytechnic School of Art about the challenges and the joys of making a living as an artist. Don't miss it. I'm Sally McMillan, and Sightlines is brought to you by the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.